We are continuing in our study of Acts uh, this morning. Chapter 13, uh, which we started last week. This week we are going to finish the rest of the chapter, which if you (laughs) have read through it, you'll know it's a good chunk of scripture. But, uh, But let me read this. Just remember, this is building upon what we talked about last week. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law, the prophets, the rulers uh, of the synagogue, sent Uh, a message to them saying brothers if you have any word of encouragement for the people say or say it so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said men of Israel and you who fear God listen the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt and with uplifted arm he led them out of it And, and for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness And after destroying seven nations of the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took place about uh, about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, and of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us have been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and for their rulers because they did not recognize him and understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is written uh, in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy uh, and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But 
He whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which he could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said of the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, of the, out, the people begged that those things might be told them the next Sabbath, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, but the Jews saw the crowds, and they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. It always astounds me when I read through a passage that I prepared a sermon on. And I see so many things <laughs> that are there before me that, uh, that I really kind of passed over. But it just, you know, repeatedly I see over and over again the depth and the richness of the word of God. Because little, let me say is this to you this morning. I could probably preach ten sermons from those those verses that we have uh, uh, just read very easily. But Paul's so-called second or, or first missionary journey has ended at this point. Now, just remember this: Paul had already been to Syria a number of times, to Pisidian in Syria, and other places. So, you know, sometimes I think we're pushing it a lot when we say that Paul went on three missionary journeys. Because he'd actually had traveled a good bit before he ever went to Cyprus with Barnabas as we studied last week. That Paul saw himself as a missionary from the very beginning. Uh, and he approached his ministry uh, according to that. But for now they've left Cyprus and we have no, no knowledge or understanding that he or, or maybe Barnabas went back there. But we do not know that Paul ever did. It's possible that he did. We just don't have a recording of scripture. But anyway, they leave Cyprus, uh, and they sail uh, n uh, north and uh, to, uh, to the southern part of Asia Minor, Central Asia Minor. Uh, they travel north into the interior of Asia Minor to a place called Pisidian Antioch. And just remember this, I mentioned this last week, uh, that we shouldn't be confused about Antioch, because there were like three or four different Antiochs in the ancient world. We've already studied uh, Syrian Antioch. This is not the same place. And very often we think at that point Paul has ended his first missionary journey with Barnabas. 
that what I would say to you is this is like the second leg of his first missionary journey. <laughs> that they're going up into Asia Minor. We're told here that uh, at Perga that John Mark left them and returned back to Jerusalem. And we, we're going to see that they, he reconnects with them at least uh, to some degree for not much time. Just remember he's the, the cousin of Barnabas. But as was their custom, and importantly, God uh, commanded them on the next Sabbath day, they entered the local Jewish synagogue and sat down. Now those here, that he didn't, they didn't go in there and just automatically start preaching and teaching and doing that sort of thing. Paul waited until he was actually invited to do that. That when the rulers of the synagogue heard uh, that Paul and Barnabas were there, they sent a message to Paul and Barnabas saying, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Quite obviously, people were talking about what had taken place during this missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. It's not an unusual thing for missionaries to speak in churches that they visit. If, if you're a church person, then you've, you've been in church quite often when there were people who came who were missionaries to Africa or India or somewhere else. Uh, and they've, they've shared with the people there the things that well, God has been doing through their ministry. So this is not an unusual thing uh, to take place for missionaries to speak uh, like this. But I want you to notice something here that Paul doesn't tell them anything about his journey. <laughs> What Paul talks about is not what has taken place uh, in Cyprus or in anywhere else as far as that goes. Paul sees this as an opportunity to share the gospel with these people, some of whom had never heard the gospel at all, ever in their whole lifetime. Notice here how Paul preaches the gospel to this predominantly Jewish gathering. He makes his case for Christianity by recounting the redemptive history of Israel. How God in all of those ages passed. How he acted in different ways and in different manners at different times. We understand that that redemptive history, because this is what we're talking about, is the history of redemption, was primarily addressed to the Jewish people who were called God's chosen race. But he recounts God's activities, actions on the behalf of Israel through their time in Egypt, through the history of the Exodus. 
in making clear to them that God's intention and purpose in that was to lead them out of bondage as his chosen people. But I want you to notice something here, and that is this, is Paul's intent and what he says is to lead his audience out of another type of bondage that they find themselves in at that point. The bondage of what we would call Pharisaic Judaism. Work salvation. You do it. You have no need for someone like a Savior. And I want to challenge us with the idea that the, the same exodus continues today. That there will be people this day that will enter into the kingdom of God for the first time in their whole lifetime. The kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of God. But again, the history that Paul recounts is not just history in general. It is redemptive history. God redeeming of his chosen people to himself. In Egypt and 40 years in the wilderness. The things that took place when they entered into the land of Canaan. The days of the judges. And most particularly bringing focus upon King David. Who said this about him, I have found in David a man after my own heart who will do my will. And this is where he brings Jesus into the picture. Of this man's offspring, of this man David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior Jesus, as he had promised. John the Baptist had been a precursor in a sense of Jesus. He came preparing the way for Christ to follow after He summarized it as a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. The people of Israel had been granted knowledge and understanding by God of precious and important things that he hadn't shared with other people. In other words, the Jewish people were those who were the very most in the know. But at this point in redemptive history where Paul is right now, the Jewish people are in need of repentance because they have rejected to a large extent the Savior Jesus Christ whom he sent. Crucified him. 
I want you to notice something, that Paul's argument is solely based upon Scripture. It's not what he thinks. It's not what other people think. It's not what he believes or what other people believe. It is what the Word of God says. It's not Paul's opinion. It's not my opinion. It's not your opinion. It is God's truth. Period. R.C. Sproul, not very, not very long, not many years before he passed away, which he, and he died at a pretty early age, very surprisingly. He wrote a book entitled Getting the Gospel Right. Some of you may have heard of it. Some of you may have read it. In his commentary on the book of Acts, R.C. Sproul revealed one of the reasons why he wrote Getting the Gospel Right. It was because he was burdened with the belief that there is an unprecedented ignorance today in the evangelical community as to what the gospel actually is. In other words, there are a lot of people in churches today are very confused about what the gospel is. Even though they probably would tell you that the gospel is preached and taught and, and followed in, in, in their church, you know, day in and day out and that sort of thing. But in the book he shares that, uh, that, that someone had actually done a survey that involved uh, people who worked in Christian book publishing. In other words, people that you would expect would very much understand what the principle and primary gospel actually is. That survey was administered to 100 people. Simply asking the question, what is the gospel? Now, one would think that every person that is involved in Christian publishing would know what the gospel is. Some said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that's good. It sounds very good and all of that sort of thing, but it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Others said, Jesus can change your life if you ask him into your heart. Well, that sounds really good, too. But it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Others said you can have a personal relationship with Jesus, which you can, and that's wonderful news and great news and all that, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and he has sent his Son into this world to live a life on our behalf that we would have salvation through his works on our behalf. Out of the 100 people that work in Christian publishing, one person got it right. And the only thing you're looking for is that I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and, I can't, and I'm accountable for it, and I cannot save myself. Therefore, I must have a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. The one and only Savior of sinners like us. 
We're not saved by our own doing. We are saved by what He has done on our behalf. People believe that they can save themselves in essence. But reality is salvation must come from without. It will never come from within. Without a lot of help by the Holy Spirit. In other words, in the gospel, what we're saying is that Jesus has done for me that which I do not want to do and even cannot do for myself. And very often, I don't even want to do them or do it. Sadly, we live in a day when the, 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 the visible church itself in this world needs to be re-evangelized. Because so many have lost complete track of the basic fundamental gospel. What was the result of Paul's preaching? Well, people didn't ask they, just kindly or whatever. They begged. In other words, what they heard that day just stimulated them that they couldn't wait to hear more. That they begged that these things would be told to them on the next Sabbath again. And we're told at that point that many of the Jews and Jewish proselytes, those are Gentiles who have converted to Judaism, that they followed after Paul and Barnabas. And we're told that during the interim between the first hearing of Paul's message and the one that's going to take place the next Sabbath, Paul told them to continue in the grace of God. Grace is a concept that, you know, I grew up in a, in a Southern Baptist church, and I'm not sure I ever heard anybody even mention grace. Now, I, that could be totally off track. I, they could have said it every week, and I just don't ever remember it. But what I'm telling you is, is when, when I began to hear about grace almost 40 years ago now, it was like an absolutely new concept to me. I have never in my life that I can remember heard anything like this. What I had been told over and over again is that, is that salvation is available to you and that you of your own free will without any help from the Holy Spirit or anybody can choose. Jesus. That's not what the Bible tells us. What it tells us is that we are saved by grace through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. 
Tharis, what does that mean? Grace. It means unmerited help or favor. Unmerited, undeserved. In other words, he doesn't give you grace because you've earned it or because you deserve it in any way, shape, or form. As a matter of fact, you, you deserve everything but grace. Grace is freely given, not coerced, not demanded, not stolen away. If Paul were here the, this morning, I would imagine that, that one of his, his messages to us would be this, to continue in the grace of God. The more we learn to humbly rely on God's grace, the more we will grow as Christians. And the more we grow as Christians, the more usable we will become. Paul understood grace. You know why? Because God gave him a boatload of it. Because he had actively persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what a revelation it had to have been for Paul when the truth finally sank into his mind, into his heart, and his soul? I doubt many of us in here, maybe some of us in here, maybe some people would think that I had done it. I'm not sure I ever did, but I doubt that most of us or any of us ever have actively persecuted people because they were Christians. God granted salvation to Paul. Did Paul earn it? Did Paul deserve it? He was throwing people in prison who believed this stuff. And he approved of it when they were murdered. The whole time thinking he was serving God. And in reality, he was doing exactly the opposite. I mean, Paul talks about grace far more than any other of the biblical writers. And I would imagine it's, it's probably because he understood it maybe in ways that some of the rest of them didn't. Because he had some understanding of the measure of grace that God had to grant to him, the persecutor, the principal and primary initial persecutor of the church. The sad thing about it is there are many people in churches today that will go to their, their grave without ever hearing the grace of God spoken about in a sermon in their whole lifetime. There are pastors, I would imagine, that avoid it because it's not easy to explain.
Just remember, all of us Protestants have our roots in the same uprising that took place in Roman Catholicism hundreds of years ago. You read the writings of Luther and you read the writings of Calvin and all of the other reformers, not just those two, there's tons of them. And it was this light that came on in that day that showed the way, the truth, and the life. And they knew it was by the grace of God. All of it. Like I said before, you're not going to hear a lot of people in churches talking about grace because of a lot of things. And one of those is they're afraid people are going to misunderstand it. And at the same time, it's probably because they don't understand it. Maybe you think you do. And we all do to a degree, but none of us really Somehow we think we deserve it. Maybe not other people, but I deserve it because God knows this, that, and the other, and, and whatever. But let me tell you, if that's why we are the chosen people of God, then it's not by grace. Grace is completely undeserved, completely unmerited. Everyone that receives it is absolutely unworthy of it. So many people understand it or misunderstand it because they believe that if, the, if the, the, the truth of grace is true, then it means that my God is unfair and my God can never be unfair. Therefore, I'm not going to talk about it and I'm not going consider to it, consider it. I'm not going to tell anybody else about it. Because if people are saved by grace and God's grace only, then God is showing favoritism. And my God would never do anything like that. My God is everything. And one of those is he is fair. In their mind, grace just is not fair. Therefore, I cannot believe it, even though it is all over Scripture. Well, let me tell you, if anybody believes that they have been saved apart from the grace of God, then they see themselves as little sinners when in fact they are exactly the opposite. Somehow people very often think God owes me an explanation. He can't do that without telling me how or why or whatever. God does not owe anybody an explanation about anything, ever. Doesn't mean he doesn't give those explanations. Sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. 
But see, the problem is this, guys, is where we are today, there is still sin in us. That is what separates us from being as close to him as we possibly can be. And it's that sin that speaks these lies into our ear that sometimes settle in our heart. In other words, people who do not understand that they are saved by the grace of God and his grace only, they see themselves as little sinners where they in fact are mega sinners. The truth of the matter is this, is no grace on God's part. No one's sins are forgiven with no exceptions. Like Paul is your pastor. There's, there's nothing more than I can do than this, but there's certainly nothing less. But to encourage you to continue in the grace of God. Just as Paul did, these brand new converts. There's so many today that avoid these passages. But consider this. As the message spread, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word the next Sabbath day. I mean, this message was grabbing hold of the hearts and the minds and desires of people. In an unbelievable way. The talk of the town. None of them had ever heard teaching and preaching like this ever before. What was the big difference? Well, the big difference is this, is the Holy Spirit was moving very mightily and very powerfully. Drawing people by grace into the kingdom of God. Well, just as was true with Jesus, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, at the same time reviling him. Sounds a whole lot like what they did to Jesus, doesn't it? Well, we understand this, that jealousy can be a destructive force. In particular, when you roll it together with sin. In other words, something that tears people down, it doesn't build people up. But there is a sense in which there is a good type of jealousy. And that's when you're jealous for the Lord and for his glory. 
mean, do we have that kind of jealousy? To be honest, we would. Uh, it'd be nice uh, if uh, Springs had a little bit greater attendance. Some of you don't know it, but there was a time when we had over a hundred people here on Sunday mornings, and when this room was pretty much packed. It's been some time ago now. People, I think, for the most part, would classify us as a little teeny tiny church. But let me tell you, there are places in the world where Springs would be a mega church, where we are this morning. Justin and Lindsay lived in the Keys uh, some three or four years ago before, and then they went to Puerto Rico and then Miami, and now they're back in the Keys. And there's only one single Reformed church in all of the Keys. It's a little teeny tiny OPC church in Key West. The same man has been there as pastor of that church since its inception 30 or 40 years ago. He's very involved in evangelism. And if you've been to Key West, you know that's a place where there's a whole big need for it. You can walk <clears throat> down the, the street in Key West and see stuff that <laughs> will just blow your mind, literally. Commonly accepted as appropriate behavior. They're meeting this morning. There's a good chance that Justin and Lindsay and their four kids are half the congregation. We're pretty close to it. And it's been that way now for all of these years. The same pastor's been there the whole time. You think that maybe at times he was, he's been discouraged? You think at times he's wanted to throw in the towel? You think at times he hasn't said, you know what, this is just not going to happen. This place is a den of Satan and we're just spitting in the wind. Let's go somewhere else where our work might be utilized to somebody's good. He's retired now, but you know what he's doing this morning? He's preaching at that church. God doesn't promise that every church is going to be a big church. The only thing he asks from every church is to be faithful to him, faithful to our calling. And see, the world would, would have us measure success in the ministry by numbers of people. What I would tell you is this, is that is a very poor way of measuring the success of a church. 
It's not the number of people that are there. It's the caliber of people that are there. How deep is their faith in Christ? How much does their religion drive everything that they do? How committed are they to the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit? And see, there's a world out there that encourages us to measure things according to worldly standards. And what I want to tell you this morning is measuring churches by the number of people they are as to whether they are being faithful to their calling to spread the gospel is a lie from the pit of hell. What God wants from every church is faithfulness to him. We cannot do what only he can. Let me tell you, if we are where we are this morning with a half-filled sanctuary because of something we're not doing, then Lord, please smack us upside the head and straighten us out. But we believe in a sovereign God, and because he's a sovereign God, I can tell you this. This church is exactly where it is right now because that is exactly where he wants it to be. about grace. Grace, 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 grace. Grace, 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 grace. Grace, grace, grace. Take away grace and you have nothing worth having. Now let me just challenge you with this. You've heard me do this many times, and that is if there are people, you hear, you feel God tugging you. There are people in your life, maybe family members, maybe neighbors, maybe people you haven't seen for a long time, but you just keep thinking about them, and you, you, but you're afraid to share the gospel with them. Don't be that person that says no to God. Because you're just afraid. We cannot let our fear keep us from being faithful to our calling. We just can't. How many people do you know that live in your neighborhood? And let me just tell you, Lori and I are guilty of this too. I know quite a few people, but I don't know absolutely everybody. For years, Lori and I have been, you know, we, we do these long walks, and we, so we'll go around our whole neighborhood five or six times, you know, before we quit sometimes. For a long time, there were people I would walk right by, neighbors. I didn't want to be disturbed in the midst of my time. 
God has really burdened me with this. Lately, I've had lots of conversations with neighbors I've just bumped into as I'm walking around the block. None of them are here this morning. Not a one of them. God's got to bring them. I can't do that. But I've also got to be his mouthpiece. It's not optional. It just isn't. We're going to continue on Acts next week. I don't know about you, but I'm loving it. I really love John, but I'm really loving Acts too. What I'm tempted to say is this. <laughs> I'm not saying this. I'm just tempted to say this, but I want to say it. I don't mean it. Don't let this whole week go by and be back here next Sunday without having a conversation with at least one person. Just one person. the gospel of Jesus. That gospel of grace. 